Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. There's a deep divide in the Bertrand household. There's a mighty gulf on the subject of Christmas movies. Lori is in the elf camp and cannot watch elf enough. For me, once was enough. I'm more in the diehard camp and think Bruce Willis made the the best Christmas movie ever. But fortunately, there's one Christmas movie where Lori and I can agree, where we can come together over Christmas and, and an attitude of peace. And that's the 1934 film, The Thin Man. It's a strange thing to think that Dashiell Hammett, the guy who wrote The Maltese Falcon, also wrote this great comic novel called The Thin Man that was made into a wonderful film starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. In fact, it was so successful that throughout the 30s and 40s, they kept making them. There's like seven of these movies in total, and I love every one of them. Uh, They play Nick and Nora Charles. They're a crime-fighting couple with a lot of witty banter between them, and they're a delight to watch these movies. They haven't, uh, well, I guess they've aged, but they've aged really well over the years. There's a scene at the end of The Thin Man that I absolutely love. Um, You know the convention with classic detective stories. The detective, uh, when he needs to solve the crime, he has to get all of the suspects together in one room. If you're in England, it's good to have a drawing room that you can do this in uh, so everyone can sit around in leather chairs as, as Poirot or whoever accuses first one and then the other. But uh, this happens in the United States, and Nick and Nora are uh, kind of uh, high livers, and so they decide to reveal the criminal by throwing a dinner party. So they throw this big dinner party. They invite everyone who's come under suspicion in the film to the dinner party. There are waiters in white jackets swarming around, but the waiters are actually police officers. They appear to be waiting at table, but they're actually uh, these kind of gruff, hardened cops who've been dressed as waiters. And their, their leader, Lieutenant Guild, is overseeing Operations And there's an exchange between Lieutenant Guild and Nora Charles that I love. Guild looks around the table. He sees all of the people around the table. And he says, I guess all the suspects are here. And the people at the table hearing themselves described this way all look up in, in alarm. They thought they were brought to a dinner party, but now they're being referred to as suspects. But Nora steps in and says, Mr. Guild means guests. She looks over the table counting noses and then says, oh, there are two more to come. And then Guild says, they'll be here, don't worry. My men are picking them up. Nora beams at him and says, you're a great help to a hostess. I wish I always had you for my dinner parties. And I know how she feels. There is nothing worse than putting a lot of effort into a dinner party, into an event, into anything. Uh, Getting ready and then waiting and having nobody show up. There have been times when we've thrown parties, when we've uh, had people over, times when we've uh, had things at the church where I would have liked to have been able to have the local police round up 
all of the people who are meant to be in attendance and deposit them here. Imagine what a delight it would be to know everyone's going to make it to church because the Sioux Falls Police Department is going to bring them. It'd be wonderful because when so much effort is expended, it's frustrating that the people that you have worked so hard to please and to serve don't even bother to show up. And in Luke 14, Jesus tells a story of exactly that situation, of a man who puts on a feast, who really pours his heart into it, and invites all of these uh, prominent people in the area to come to his feast, and they don't show up. Everybody makes excuses and bows out. So we find this story in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, Starting in verse 16, Jesus tells this tale to a group of Pharisees that he's sharing a table with. We've already checked in on this conversation earlier, but now Jesus launches into a parable, parable of the great banquet. So in verse 16, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I must go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable, and we ask for your wisdom as we seek to interpret the words that Jesus speaks. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes, as I said to our high school students this morning, Jesus tells a parable and then he explains it. But in this instance, he tells a story and he doesn't explain what he's getting at. But I think if we read the story well, we can understand the, the point that he's making, the thrust of his story. It's about excuses. Some excuses keep you from eating with Jesus. Some excuses keep you from eating with Jesus. Now, when you're reading a parable, you have to be careful. There are some pitfalls that you can fall into in reading these stories that Jesus tells. Don't read the parable too woodenly. It's possible to read too much into the details. You can come to a parable like this. You could say, aha, so the man who's giving the feast, he represents God. And the people he has invited, they represent the Pharisees, of course, the, the prideful ones. And because they've made an excuse, God is angry at them, and he's decided, fine, if you don't want the gift of salvation, I will take it to these other people. I will save those people instead of you. 
You could read that as the intention of the story. But you have to be careful about making those one-to-one correspondences because the actions of the master in this story don't all correspond to actions of God. So don't read it too woodenly, but also do make connections. Right? When you tell the story that way, that this great feast is offered, that the offer is rejected, and so that offer then goes to another group that wasn't originally included, that should ring some bells. It should get you thinking about something that will come into focus as the New Testament progresses. But Jesus is rejected by the religious establishment of Israel. John writes in his prologue, he came to his own people and his own people rejected him. So that part of the story does ring true. Jesus is coming to a people, to these righteous Pharisees who you would expect as good religious men would embrace him, but instead they reject him. And that rejection does open the door, so to speak, to the inclusion of the Gentiles. In Romans 11, Paul says, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So there is a sort of redemptive history uh, shadow, let's say, in this story, like something that we can see going on, a greater significance, a greater warning, let's say, in this parable that the people who heard it would not have expected, they wouldn't have understood it the way we do with the benefit of hindsight. But I think it's important not just to use the benefit of hindsight and say to ourselves, well, knowing what we know now, this parable suggests redemptive history. We should also struggle to think about like, why Jesus is telling this story to these people and what is the moral of that story in its context. And there's a a point to this that applies to the moment that Jesus finds himself in, at this table. There's a reason why he's telling a story like this to these people. The moral of the story. Now, at the end of this tale, the master says these words, and standing at the end of the story, I think we should see that this is the point, this is part of the point, Uh, He says, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquets. None of these privileged, none of these wealthy, none of these prominent people, none of these people who were invited but made excuses will taste of this banquet. Because of the excuses they made, they will not partake. Jesus here is actually building on some advice that he gave earlier at this banquet, at the table. Actually, the the story comes as a result of some comments that are made at the table. If you go back earlier in Luke 14, look at verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, and it's a little pointed. He says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the dead. Imagine you've invited Jesus to your dinner party with all of your your Pharisee buddies, your friends, and Jesus says, hey, here we are at a party. Um, I would recommend that when you throw a party, you don't invite these people, that you invite the poor and the crippled and the lame, because they can't repay you. 
Like every Pharisee you've invited to sit around this table will invite you next time, and everything that you have invested will be repaid by your guests. That's not the way you should do it, Jesus says. Instead, when you do this sort of thing, next time, keep this in mind, you should invite people who could not possibly repay your hospitality. And if you've just put on this feast, it's like, that's awkward. <laughs> that's kind of a little uh, a little uh, direct, Jesus. Maybe you could tell a parable next time and uh, soften the blow. It is awkward, and... and, and when you make pious people awkward, there's usually one who's willing to come to the, save the, the moment, the situation, by making some pious observation that surely no one could object to. And sure enough, somebody does this. After Jesus says this awkward thing, and the silence kind of ensues, uh, a pious Pharisee at the table says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you're like, yes, True. But Jesus then tells the story that we've just heard as an answer to that sentiment. So there's a principle that Jesus has given, and I don't think he's trying to spoil the occasion. I think he's using it to to point to a deeper reality. He's using it to show how God sets the table. God doesn't party the way that we do. God doesn't set a table and say, hmm, I think I'll invite a bunch of angels. And maybe they'll throw a party and invite me next week. That's not how God operates. When God throws the party, he invites those who cannot possibly repay. He reaches out to the poor and the lame and the crippled. He fills his table with those who have no hope of inviting him back who have no hope of, of, of balancing the scale. That's the way God parties. And then this pious individual says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he, he, he walks into the trap. Because what he does is he takes the focus away from the table they're seated at and shifts it to the table at the end of the world, to the great eschatological feast that is promised, that one day there will be this this marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be this table set where we will feast with the God who made all things and his Son who remade all things. He points his finger forward into time and piously says, what a blessing it will be to sit at that feast. The implication being, it'll be wonderful to see all of you again. And then Jesus says, maybe not. Maybe not. That feast you're talking about may not look like you think. If you think that the feast at the end of time that that God is throwing is going to be a bunch of righteous people sitting at the table complimenting one another. It's not that way. It'll be the poor. It'll be the lame. It'll be the crippled. It'll be those who cannot possibly repay. That's what's coming. That's why Jesus tells the story. Jesus is speaking of the feast to come, the table that is set for us in eternity. It is a table not for the so-called righteous who don't feel the need and who make excuses to avoid it. 
who put it off for another day, who do not answer the summons when called. It is a table for the poor in spirit. It is a table for those who realize this table is too good for us. We cannot possibly repay it. The only way we could be seated here is by grace. There's no other way. There are three excuses given in Jesus' parable about why people can't come. And a lot of research, you'll be glad to know, has been done by scholars on, on what these excuses signify, whether or not these are reasonable excuses to make. I mean, after all, if you've brought some property... Um, and it just so happens you bought it on the day of this feast. How are you to know? It's really important that you check that out. I mean, it's inconceivable if you've bought five yoke of oxen that you not go and, and fetch those oxen, inspect the goods. How can you go and party when you have responsibilities? And, and think of the poor wife who's, who's just been married, and now her husband has been invited to this great feast. I mean, men, you know, the last thing in the world that a wife would want would be to be dragged to some elaborate social occasion with fine food and, and, and all that. No, she'd rather stay home and spend time with her husband. You can understand these excuses. They seem plausible on their face. But if you think about it, there's like an excuse behind the excuses. There's something implied in these excuses. But there's a, a, a let's call it a self-sufficiency. To excuse yourself from the feast suggests that, that, like, I lose nothing in the exchange. It's okay. Like, I'm not, I'm not going to lose something that I could never have otherwise. If I don't accept this invitation, there will be other invitations. You know, I've been invited to a lot of feasts. I actually dine quite well at home. So saying no now because it's not convenient because it doesn't work with my schedule, because I have other priorities, it seems like a reasonable thing to do. Each person who makes an excuse has a higher priority than accepting. There's something more important, there's something more pressing, there's a greater need in that moment than to accept this hospitality. Something wonderful has been prepared for them, something they can't imagine. Great lengths have been gone to, to, to prepare for them, but they don't think they need it. They're things that are more important. Putting off the feast costs them nothing. They'll simply attend a more convenient feast on a different day that fits better. The reality is, though, as, as the conclusion of the story suggests, the reality is, although they may think they lose nothing, they lose everything. The master of the feast is determined that those who rejected this invitation will not taste this food. Their places will be filled. He goes out and he brings in the unworthy to sit at the table, but there's not enough of them. There's still places. So he goes out farther and he compels the unworthier to come to the table so that it's clear that those who didn't think they needed to be here have no place here. It's a wake-up call. They thought they would lose nothing, but they lose everything, all because they thought in their comfort and complacency that they didn't need it. They were ignorant 
of their true need. We make a lot of excuses when Christ calls. It isn't always convenient. We have other offers. Eventually, we'll get to it. It's not that I don't have an interest in this stuff, but it's not now. I mean, there are other priorities that I have, and and we imagine that there's always time. Our excuses sometimes are couched philosophically. Christ calls to us, and we're like, well, I'm not even sure you exist. I'm not sure I should take seriously this table. Paul in Romans 1, though, says there is a kind of dishonesty to all of our excuses, a kind of dishonesty to our delays, a suppression of something, of a truth, of a need that is deeply known. Jesus speaks of the anger of the man who throws the feast. Paul speaks of the wrath of God. Romans 1.18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, he says. They are without excuse. Their excuses are empty and hollow. Their excuses are a denial of something deeply known. We excuse ourselves from the feast because we do not know ourselves, because we lie to ourselves about our own nature, about our own need. We tell ourselves we don't need what's being offered but only because we do not know what our need truly is. Some excuses keep you from eating with Jesus. Some excuses keep you from eating with joy. There are other kinds of excuses Jesus talks about, not just these rejections, these wholesale rejections, but but smaller rejections. Excuse-making keeps some of us from knowing Christ, but even those of us who do know him still keep away from him by making excuses. In other words, some excuse-making keeps you out of the family, and some excuse-making keeps you alienated within the family. If you look at the second text, it's one that we've touched on earlier. It's the last half of the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. This one concerns the older son. There's there's a kind of coda after the main story is told. That coda concerns excuse-making. The older son learns that a feast is going on. When he hears the sounds of the feast, he he doesn't move forward. And Napoleon once gave orders to his troops, pretty simple, march to the sound of the guns. On the battlefield, we're going to be separated You're not going to know what direction to go, but whenever in doubt, march to the sound of the guns, and that's where you'll find the battle. Here, you might say Jesus says, march to the sound of the feast. When you hear the joy, when you hear the feasting happening, go that way. But the older son hears it, and he doesn't. 
In Luke 15, starting in verse 25, Jesus says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father doesn't go to the son and say, Since you made an excuse and didn't come to the feast, you will not taste of my banquet. You are disinherited. That's not what he says. He comes to the son and says, You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Despite his excuse, this older son hasn't lost his place at the table, but he has excluded himself from the joy. He's excluded himself from the joy of that table. So Jesus, in Luke 14 and 15, you might think of it this way, he's calling out two different kinds of Pharisee, two different kinds of pride. There's one whose pride leads him to reject Christ entirely, but there's another who accepts Christ yet holds back from full communion because of pride. The first says, I don't need this. Well, the second says, I need this, but I don't need all of it. Or I need this, but I need it to work differently for me. I need it on my own terms. The judgment that Jesus speaks on that first kind of excuse-making is hard. But to the second, he's actually merciful. The second... He, he tells a story where the father calls the son to repentance. The father urges the son to be reconciled, to enter into the joy of the feast. We do want this faith on our own terms. Right? We do want it to work the way we need it to work for us. Uh, sometimes we refer to people who have a habit of picking and choosing Christianity, like with the parts that they want and the parts that they don't want. The people who bend the gospel, their own terms, are, are called uh, cafeteria Christians. Maybe you've heard that term, cafeteria Christians, sort of going down the buffet line saying, oh, God is love, I'll have that on my tray. Oh, sin, no thanks, I'll keep going. And we kind of go through and we grab whatever it is we want from this big buffet line of Christian ideas We take what works for us. Well, we usually say that dismissively, but there is a sense in which all of us are guilty of that to one extent or another. If you're honest, but there are parts of this faith that you embrace wholeheartedly, and there are parts of it that you're like, "Mm, okay, and there are parts of it that are like, "Ah, I wish I hadn't seen that in the Bible, right? We have differing levels of of commitment, different levels of acceptance and and honesty. Recently, I found someone who's actually defending the idea of being a cafeteria Christian. 
Um, I'm going to read you this quote, and I want to read it to you, not to, to, to make light of it or to poke fun at it, but to say, although I don't agree, I get it. I see where this rationale comes from. Uh, here's the quote. Cafeteria Christian is typically a pejorative, but like most insults, I can find the compliment within. We are not here to blindly accept the world or the systems within it. We are here to create our own. I'm not that kind of Christian, but I think it's possible to create the kind of faith system we want to see in the world. There are parts of that that resonate. There are parts of that that sound good to me. I agree. We're not here to blindly accept the world or the systems within it. But the gospel is not that. What Christ has called us to is not just another one of the world's systems. It's something else. So to say that the only other option is to create our own is a little bit of a false dichotomy. I don't think we're here to blindly accept the world and its systems, nor do I think we're here to create our own. There is a third way. What about the faith system God wants to see in the world? What about what God wants us to take? What about the meal that God has prepared in its entirety? The gospel isn't a grocery store. It is a meal. We're tempted sometimes to treat it as if what God has done is he's given us raw ingredients and invited us into scripture to find all the stuff on the shelves, to use what appeals to us, to put it all together in a way that, that, that tastes good to us, that satisfies our taste. And I'm not just criticizing other people here. I'm saying I do it too. You do it too. But we all shop in the Bible. We shop our way through scripture looking for the part that tastes good to us. But Christ doesn't offer a set of raw ingredients for us to make whatever suits us. He sets the table and he serves the meal. You're not the chef. You're not the sous chef. You're the diner. You're the one invited in. You're here to experience what you will never taste on your own what you would never choose for yourself. You'll give up on excuses when you realize that when you sit at this table through Christ, that is the only possible way to be there. Through that grace is the only possible way to eat that meal. Jesus says to invite the poor to your feast because they can't possibly pay you back. There's an emphasis on the poor, on the value of poverty, on the knowledge that comes with poverty throughout the Gospels, because the poor can't help but know certain things that the rest of us are ignorant of. Poverty forces a kind of knowledge on you that uh, prosperity does not. Everyone seated at that great eschatological feast will be poor. The only difference, everyone at the table is the same. The only difference is the truly poor know it and the rich don't. The rich don't know how poor they are. 
When you're poor, you know you can't repay. Some of us have tasted this more than others, but all of us to some extent know what this feels like, to be in the debt of another that you can't repay, to have someone do something for you, pick up the tab for you in a way that you can't reciprocate. Right? Someone invites you to a restaurant and you get there and you realize this is not the kind of place I would go to if I had realized. You look at those prices and you're like, wow, no, there's just no way. But now we're here. What can I do? And then the person who invites you says, oh, I'll pick up the check, which is great, but it's also worse because now you're sort of obligated. You're on the hook, it seems like. But sometimes you find yourself in that situation, you realize no one ever expected me to reciprocate. You're invited into something with the knowledge that you could never repay. And then suddenly having that tab picked up for you is fine because you know there's no expectation behind it. Like this was a gift and I can graciously accept that gift. When you're poor, you can't help but know that you can't repay. You can't help but know that you don't have the means to reciprocate. It's a knowledge that's forced on you. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he's saying no matter what your bank account looks like, what you need is spiritual poverty. Because only spiritual poverty will teach you what you need to know, will force you to learn what, what spiritual strength will blind you to. Spiritually speaking, we must aspire to poverty. I think one of the reasons why there's so much emphasis on physical poverty and on, on serving the poor throughout Scripture is that analog, the value that God places on poverty of a spiritual kind. When you're poor in spirit, you stop making excuses and you go to the table. You go to the table, you accept the gift. You stop making excuses when you realize you have everything to lose. It was pride that made you think you didn't need it. It was pride that made you think you could wait. When you're poor in spirit, you realize that you have nothing and you need to be at this table. You stop making excuses when you realize this is the only possible way People like us don't get to go to places like this unless Jesus is picking up the tab. It's the only way we can approach the table is through grace. It's pride that makes you think you can pay the price on your own. It's pride that makes you think you don't need him as your host. But spiritual poverty makes you grateful because you realize there's no other way that we could experience this apart from him. Because we've been talking throughout this series about eating and meals, I've, I've touched briefly on, on my own peculiarities of diet. Um, I'm shy, and I'm also a picky eater. And those two things in combination mean that for me, worst case scenario is a social situation where I'm surrounded by strangers and I have no control over the menu. These are the situations I try to avoid at all costs. I know for a lot of you, you grew up, you went to college, and the first time you were away from your family at Thanksgiving was so hard. Not for me. The first time I was away 
You said to me, Mark, you've got to spend the holiday on your own, in control of your own time and your own menu. Um, I was jubilant. I was excited. It's how I'd always wanted to live. And then a friend of mine took pity on me and invited me to his home for Thanksgiving, and I couldn't say no. It was horrible. It's like from, from my dream to my nightmare, and, and I couldn't get out of it. And, of course, you know, you hear these stories. It all worked out fine. It was actually wonderful. And, and the guy who invited me was later the best man at our wedding, and, uh, and I forgave him for, for, for taking that away from me. It was, it was great. But, but people always give you the impression that something like that happens and you learn your lesson. You know, that one event happened, then I realized I was being foolish. And from now on, I will seek out groups of strangers and say, tell me what to eat. <laughs> but that's not how life works, right? You, you get through one of these crises and you say, that was fine. It was wonderful. Now I just need to avoid it ever happening again. And so my, I've lived my life kind of that way. And, and not too long ago, a few years ago, Lori and I got this very gracious invitation uh, to go to one of these things downtown where, where this chef prepares this fancy meal, and, uh, and we didn't have to pay for it. It was already paid, and I wasn't thinking, and I said, sure, that sounds wonderful. And then we got there, and we walked in, and, and I was expecting like a restaurant, lots of little tables. Oh, no. It was like a medieval feasting hall. Everybody seated together at these long tables, and, and that meant I was seated with strangers around me. I started getting nervous. I'm like, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then I saw, like, there weren't menus on the table. And then I'm starting to sweat. And, and I see, like, there's a board where this this menu of things that, that I read several times. I'm like, I don't think any of that's edible. <laughs> and then a chef got up and talked about each one, and I realized we don't get a choice. They're going to bring out whatever they want us to eat, and we're going to have to sit there and eat it. And that's what I had to do. I had to grin and bear it. I had to do my best. And yes, it was wonderful. Once I was forced into the situation, it was actually delightful. And, and now every time I go to a restaurant, I order those dishes. No, not really. I've never ordered any of them. But it was wonderful in the moment. And sometimes you only realize those things for, for an instant, and then you forget almost as soon as you learned. We make so many excuses like Jesus says, come to my feast, and you're like, uh, I don't think so. I like to be in control of, of who I dine with. I like to have a little bit of say in the menu. This probably isn't for me. And we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is this great master chef, right? He's put together this, this dish of inestimable worth. We say he is the priest who offers himself. He is the chef who serves himself up for us. Something you cannot taste any other way. Something of indescribable beauty. The thing that you're dodging, the thing that you're trying to escape, the thing that you're making excuses not to have to taste is the most wonderful thing that will ever touch your lips. Those excuses aren't just keeping us away from the table. They're keeping us away from all of the beautiful and glorious and incomprehensible goodness that God promises us. 
grace, we need to start eating without excuses. We can't all eat fearlessly, not all at once, but we can encourage one another to trust what Christ has prepared, what Christ has given. We can encourage one another more and more to let down our guard in the presence of Christ and to come to his table wholeheartedly, to embrace his gospel without reservation, without excuses. We can encourage one another to trust in the Lord whose table it is. Welcome the doubtful and say to them, taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.